This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute legal, tax, investment, financial, or other advice. It is not intended to cause or induce breach of an existing agency agreement. The goal of this podcast since day one is to provide the best information on the Vancouver real estate market at no cost to you, the listeners. To that end, we'd like to thank the following sponsors. This podcast is sponsored by Marcon, a local family-owned and managed real estate development and construction company that's been around for nearly four decades. Marcon is not only committed to high-quality construction, but it also is making a positive impact in the communities in which it builds all across the Lower Mainland. We want to highlight two incredible Marcon projects. Elmwood, a 38-story tower located at Burquitlam's most important intersection, Como Lake Avenue and Clark Road. This landmark tower will feature 335 condominiums, over 37,000 square feet of office and retail space, and almost 20,000 square feet of amenity space. Elmwood has been incredibly popular with 80% sold currently, but they still have a great selection of junior one-bedroom all the way to three-bedroom homes remaining. Check out markon.ca slash Elmwood for more. And Matt, we are also excited about Sone House, Markon's newest community in West Coquitlam. With 165 homes ranging from junior one beds to three beds, Sone House offers the perfect West Coast aesthetic with a more nuanced Nordic-inspired design. Register today at markon.ca slash Sonehouse. That's S-O-E-N-H-A-U-S. Or you can learn more at markon.ca or follow them at Instagram at markonhomes. Markon, building for life. Hello? 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 This is the Vancouver Weather State Podcast. And welcome back to Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Scalina. And I'm your other host, Matt Scalina. Matt, today we've got a fan favorite on the show. That's right. Professor Tom Davidoff returns. Tom Davidoff, UBC, Sauter School of Business, uh, associate professor. Yeah. Has become kind of the local talking head for real estate in greater Vancouver. All things Vancouver real estate, you can't get on the podcast. People go to uh, Tom Davidoff. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's a really, really great conversation. It's kind of laid back, loose. We cover a lot of ground, but we also talk about Tom just had an article in the Vancouver Sun yeah, called Zoning piece. for Dollars, an right. op ed piece, which was really, it kind of caught our attention. So we wanted him to talk about that. Yeah. But then we sort of go off. I mean, I think 105 Kiefer, that whole debacle was what spurred Tom on in right. part to write that piece. So we we cover that kind of identity politics and zoning. And the market it, in general. Yeah, it's, and, it's uh, freewheeling, freewheeling. And my favorite thing, the Groves-Clark mechanism. That's right. That was one of the high points for me as well. That was, Wait, I spent what? a lot of time on uh, on on Wikipedia. With Wait, Brayden, one. you have something to say? What's, what's the Groves-Clark mechanism? Stay tuned. Enjoy, guys. Okay, so we're here with uh, Tom Davidoff, UBC economist at the Sauter School of Business. How are you doing, Tom? Very well, and thank you for having me today. Thanks hey, for coming back. Yeah, thanks for the time again. 
So, Tom, we brought you back on because you just wrote an op-ed in the Vancouver Sun called Zoning for Dollars, Getting Community Amenity Contributions Out of the Back Room, uh, which was a fascinating piece and an interesting argument that we want to get to. But we were also interested in getting your thoughts more on the 105 key for development generally, because that kind of played out and we haven't talked to you since. So... Obviously, there's a very contentious debate during that process, and, and it ultimately failed. Who were the big winners in the 105 Key for Development face-off? Boy, that is a great question. I don't know the uh, attorneys and planners involved and what their fee structure is, but uh, I'm guessing anytime you have contention, <laughs> it's got to be good for the planning and legal business. <laughs> So the planners went out on this one. Oh, that was not the answer I was thinking. <laughs> uh, there's another question in here about who is the Chinatown community, but did the Chinatown community win? That's an excellent question. Um, depends what you mean by the community. Yeah, you know, if it's a senior looking for housing, my suspicion is they didn't because I think there's going to be less uh, affordable seniors housing built when you've got a smaller building under as of right zoning with less need for uh, the developer to, uh, to, to, to buy into stuff. Um, so I don't know if there's a win. Look, I, I also don't want to disrespect the possibility that that parking lot, as it is, is an important part of the community. Surface, I mean, I'm, uh, I don't want to be, <laughs> it's tempting to be sardonic about this. I don't really see how surface parking at grade or a smaller building creates more of a Chinatown feel. The Chinatowns I know are pretty hemmed in streets. They're bustling. Yeah. So I, I, it's just hard for me to see how two stories less or whatever as of right zoning will be relative to the rezoning proposal. I just don't see how that's really helping the community much. Uh, it's not like you're going to stave off gentrification for very long at a location like that. Uh, even if every unit in the building were affordable rental, there's just way more people who want affordable rental than can live in Chinatown. So, you know, I think people just have an instinctive distaste for development, and I can understand that. But, you know, what's the cost? How bad is it? And it's easy to go to a community hearing and vent your rage. And I guess another point is, you know, what's the upside to not going to the community hearing and venting your rage at the general real estate community? Why not? So I don't know if anybody got anything out of it. Obviously, we get less housing and uh, the city probably gets less fees to collect. Do, so do you think the people against the development were misguided? I want to be careful. Uh, you know, I do not live in that community. Candidly, I don't spend that much time there except for biking to stuff. Maybe the taller building would have ruined the community feel. It's really hard for me to say, you know, to put a dollar value, you know, because to compare outcomes, you really have to put dollar values on them. How much is the extra housing worth? I mean, you can figure out at the market, but for the seniors housing, how much is that worth to the community? How much is less height worth to the community? How much is a feeling that this once working class ethnic neighborhood is now being gentrified worth? You know, very hard to quantify that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Tom, Henry, you came out with his theory. It's kind of the do-nothing theory on, on Chinatown. You know, I was there this morning having a, a breakfast at Delina's, um, you know, a new kind of grocery store, coffee shop, eatery. And what do you think about, like, it, it does seem that Chinatown is changing very rapidly regardless of what anyone does. What are your thoughts about Henry Yu's policy on do-nothing? Okay, so, you know, what do nothing is, is pretty hard to define. 
urban renewal projects, you know, I'm from New York, they managed to really destroy a lot of neighborhoods building freeways, which was a terrible mistake. Right. I spent a lot of my life in Boston and, you know, they spent billions, I don't know, tens, hundreds of billions of dollars burying a mistake of a freeway that really split the city uh, in pieces, the, the big dig project. So yeah, urban renewal, giant big plans to screw up what the the market and the community comes up with as their own plan. That's one thing, and I don't disagree, but that's very different, not building freeways from the government intervening hugely into the market. I assume 105 uh, Kiefer left to the market's devices would have been 50 stories. So uh, I'm not recalling off the top of my head what my proposal is, but it was probably a quarter of what the market would have built. So the government's hardly doing nothing, uh, even if it allows 12 stories. Um, so the government's doing a lot when it zones so intensely. So I'm, I'm not quite sure what he means by do nothing from what starting point. Mm -hmm. One more question before we get to your kind of proposal on, on development here. People were talking about 105 Kiefer as almost a, a referendum on the direction of city planning. Did you see it that way? Or is Chinatown unique? Is this symbolic of the future of Vancouver? Good question. I mean, I would say generally we're building probably higher downtown than we should be and not high enough in residential neighborhoods like on the west side. You know, if you made Vancouver blanket four or five stories like in Amsterdam or a Paris or something, maybe that would be a nicer outcome. I think the reason big buildings get stuck downtown is because of the politics. Um, you know, it's neighborhoods that are accustomed to density. Maybe you're seeing neighborhood groups who aren't affluent homeowners, you know, stepping up their game and being in the not in my backyard crowd. So, yeah, you know, I mean, I do I, I do think the existing model of big towers where you can do it downtown and do absolutely nothing novel on the west uh, side and a lot of the east side. I think that that's going to come under pressure for a lot of reasons. So, Tom, the city last uh, well, actually about two weeks ago now released the Northeast Falls Creek Community Plan. It's clear that they they tried to fit a lot in in the plan and tried to appease a lot of different stakeholders. Do you have any thoughts on on the plan or do you think they got it right? I don't know that they got it right or wrong. I mean, they definitely got it wrong, right? They didn't do the best possible zoning because the best possible zoning is A, very hard to describe and B, probably not a, a political winner. But, you know, the city has some interesting constraints. You know, I was in a room full of developers a few weeks ago. I might have mentioned this on the last podcast. And, you know, I asked them, we were sitting downtown somewhere and I said, would any of you voluntarily build an office anywhere here? if it wasn't zoned that it had to be office? And the answer was no, mm -hmm. right? Residential outbids, you know, commercial of any kind, just about everywhere. You know, I have my MBA students every year. So I, I tell them, you know, find an underdeveloped piece of land and tell me what should go there. And it used to be interesting. I'd get shopping centers, I'd get office buildings, I'd get hotels, but now <laughs> all I get is condo because of course that's the highest and best use everywhere. So is that sustainable? Do we really want Vancouver to become a bedroom community for Metro Town, which is arguably uh, the direction things are headed because the amenities so high in the city, maybe the jobs are going to be out in the valley. Uh, you know, maybe you want to swim against that tide. And it sounds to me like by banning residential in a fair amount of the new uh, False Creek flats, uh, maybe the, the, the game is to increase the ratio of jobs to residences in Vancouver. That's not a crazy idea, but probably just more jobs and more housing would have been the way to go. 
Interesting. So, so maybe we'll get to to your uh, op-ed piece in the Vancouver Sun. I believe it was not Saturday, but the Saturday before. Uh, zoning for dollars, getting community amenity contributions out of the back room. Can you kind of detail the argument there, Tom? It's a, it's an interesting one. Absolutely. And, you know, the motivation was we had a really fascinating event Thursday evening where I had a panel with uh, Gil Kelly from planning in Vancouver, David Taylor from Colliers, uh, Damon Chan from West Bank and uh, Craig Cameron, a really sharp attorney who's a city council member uh, in West Van. And, uh, you know, I think there was a lot of consensus around the idea that we need more transparency in the community amenity contribution process, which I would call zoning for dollars. And and I came up with a calculation that really blew me away. It didn't make it into the op-ed. I think local governments around Vancouver may control about a trillion dollars worth of zoning rights. So if, you know, zoning were relaxed in West Van and you could build condo buildings, you know, closer to the water and you could build townhomes up in the neighborhoods, you know, that is a lot of money. And what a community amenity contribution does is say, well, you know, we're not just going to give you the zoning, you're going to have to pay for it. You know, it sounds kind of suspect and, oh, my God, you know, it shouldn't just be about dollars and cents. Planning should be about community needs, which is, of course, true. But, you know, when you bust zoning, you're kind of screwing up the planning process. You got to pay for it. How much? And, you know, the question is, how should we set those prices? Should it be a, a negotiation in a back room where you've got a very sophisticated developer against planners who struggle to read a pro forma? Do you have an auction? where, you know, you figure out what the highest bidder is, I think something closer to the latter really may be better. Let, let's put the development where the developers are willing to pay the most, not where you have a developer who happens to be better at the political game than somewhere else. So, you know, if I go to the council hearing at 105 Kiefer, what are my alternatives as a member of the community? I can kick and scream and some of, of housing units that I can't afford do or don't get built. If I, if I block the project or not, Mm -hmm. if the project goes ahead, I individually get almost nothing. Money goes into the pockets of the city and, uh, you know, I really don't, don't get anything out of it. So why would I support a project like 105 Kiefer? You know, if I'm some millennial, it's just what, I'm not going to get one of those apartments. So, you know, housing gets like marginally cheaper in Metro Vancouver but that's a very small gain shared among many, many people. So why would I support the project? You know, I think if you want to be really transactional about it, you know, make people uh, put their money where their mouth is. Why don't you say the people who live around the project who are most impacted can name a price? You know, uh, we can define the groups who are plausibly affected by the modification of Chinatown and say, OK, how much money would it take? to let you build this project. And I, my suspicion is the legitimate objections of the neighbors in dollar terms are probably less than the benefits of going a few extra stories. If the city acted like a middleman and said, okay, neighborhood groups, you name a price. How much does it cost to build you know, an extra unit of FSR above zoning in your neighborhood? How much do you need your property taxes cut? Name a number, you community groups. Developers, you tell us how much you're willing to pay for extra FSR by neighborhood, put in bids. And the city could say, well, wherever the gap between what the neighborhood demands for busting zoning and what the developers are willing to pay to bust zoning, the city can take that spread and uh, spend it on bike lanes and affordable housing projects. Now, that's a fantasy. I understand that's not really how planning is going to go. But if you think about it, you'd get lots of housing units built. And they'd be built in the communities that most want money 
and least object to development, and the city would get a ton of money in return. Compare that to the existing political framework, which is let's have everybody in the city, but mostly neighbors, you know, engage in cheap talk about the devastating impacts of the project and see where the chips fall. I, I think getting towards a market-based solution really does help. And, you know, the other side is let's not kid ourselves. You know, financial considerations obviously strongly impact zoning outcomes. So let's think about this as a transaction to the extent it's not politically disgusting to do so. So we had Neil LaMontagne and we had uh, Francis Buell on the on the podcast in the last uh, few weeks. And one mm. of the things they talked about is how great the city is at actually leveraging developers to build amenities or to build social housing or retirement communities or giving parks. something, yeah. parks, something back to the city, right? Would, would what you're saying be an addition to that or would it be a new model of negotiation? I think cities around the community are doing very well. I, I believe Burnaby is collecting a lot of money. Uh, I think Vancouver's collecting a lot of money and, you know, I, I think they're doing their best. You know, they're trying to read how much uh, are, are builders willing to pay. You know, you don't want to scare off new development, uh, but you don't want to give stuff away. And I think the cities are doing a reasonable job of it. But, you know, let's be explicit. I think, you know, at the provincial level, the province tells communities, hey, don't charge a price for development. You know, don't make it transparent, make it negotiated. And I think that's the worst possible advice because it limits the number of people who can build buildings and it introduces uncertainty. So less is built. You know, uh, Damon from West Bank and, and, and David from Colliers both said there's nothing wrong with community amenity contributions, but where it scares off development is when it's uncertain, when going into the process, you don't know how much you're going to have to pay because it can be a lot and it can really blow up the deal. So developers are going to demand higher rates of return and uh, development will be diminished if it, there's uncertainty. And the city will probably wind up getting less money. So anything you can do to establish a price, if you pay this amount of money, then go ahead. And if you can't pay that amount of money, no deal. But again, the cities are getting close to that. I, I, I don't mean this as a criticism of where CACs are going. I think we can build on what cities have sort of figured out for themselves. Okay, so Tom, so we we tweeted at you uh, about 105 Kiefer Street, and um, we were actually met with a lot of resistance, and right? Actually, we tweeted at you mainly for a suggestion for somebody to speak to, right? right? We were looking for another <laughs> Not guest, even but... your comment, but but people had a tough time with... You know, a guy from Brooklyn who who maybe hasn't been in Vancouver as long as some of the other people here, and and also an academic who doesn't live in Chinatown. Why ask Tom Davidoff, right? So, so, so why does an economist with an Eastern European last name get to talk about density and zoning in Vancouver? Yeah, that's a totally fair question. I don't think. I should get to go to the hearing at 105, Kiefer, and say, well, I'm the ex the owl, the expert, for those of you who know Mr. Rogers. I'm ex the owl. I'm the expert. I have a degree. So I get to tell you what happens. You know, when you have that kind of decision making, what we got was urban renewal. You know, don't have democracy. The experts are going to cram this down your throats. Right. And uh, that leads to disaster. And I completely agree. You know, that's what I was raised on. That was what my parents believed, that you got to have community engagement. I, I couldn't be more in agreement. I don't think I should get to dictate 105 Kiefer. As an economist, what I can contribute is thoughts that have been collected for years and years uh, about what happens when people are squabbling uh, over limited resources. And the answer is you've got to define property rights somehow. Who has the right to weigh in? 
And if there's a disagreement, how is that disagreement going to be settled? And generally speaking, what we find is when there's a market uh, and people are allowed to engage in transactions, you know, the fact that my eating an apple hurts you, you know, how do we figure that out? Well, if you have the right to prevent me from eating an apple, that's no problem. I have to pay you to eat the apple. Similarly, if you think there's a group of people who are really impacted, say a Chinatown community group that you could maybe organize. That's not trivial to do, but if you could define a group of people who really are impacted, then all the better. They can then tell the city, look, we, you know, of course we want money. We have needs, uh, but it's going to take a lot. We need a lot of money for this housing to get built. And, you know, they don't have an incentive to lie because if they name too high of a price, they don't get any money. They don't get any building. They might well be better off with uh, a total of, I don't know, 50 million bucks for the community in a taller building. And that might work out very well for the developer, too. You know, so if there's a gain to the building being built in the neighborhood getting paid off, great. If not, the building really shouldn't be getting built. But what you have to do is find a way for the neighborhood, A, to get some benefits, and B, an incentive for them to be honest about just how bad it is. When communities don't get any benefit from upzoning, there's no reason for them to be honest. They should say, this is the most devastating thing that ever happened. You know, if my view, I'm looking at the water right now, if my neighbor blocks my view under a zoning proposal, why on earth would I do anything other than go to the city and say that, you know, this is, you're disrespecting the traditions. I grew up in a community in New York where views of the water are valued and treasured. Of course, I'm going to do that. But, you know, if if my neighbor would pay me 600K to block my view, it would be a very different story. So is the issue then here that certain members of the community were going to see no benefit? And that's why the meetings were so... Well, well, let's draw a contrast between the failure. I think everybody thinks 105 Kiefer didn't go very well uh, versus the Camby townhome, which is now going to be expanded to phase three. Why are the neighbors so supportive of expanding townhome density in that area? Because they're going to cash in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, If you allow your neighbor to build high, you get to build high too. And we're talking millions of dollars of augmented property value. Now, the city is grabbing a community amenity contribution because the community, everybody's benefiting from this upzoning now. Uh, and, and this sort of, in a way, what the community group is getting is they're getting to upzone their own land. So they're happy and the city can get the spread. I think they're undercharging. Uh, you know, I think it's about 60, 65 bucks a square foot uh, when you get the upzoning and, you know, you're selling it for a spread of, I don't know, 700 over construction costs. So the city's giving it away too cheap. But I think that's a great example. Make sure the neighbors win, the builders win, and the city gets uh, some upside, too, so we can spend on affordable housing. Because, of course, anything that's built today in Vancouver is not going to be affordable. So take the cash and give it to the people in need. You know, I just want to say The last thing I would encourage is trashing the environment or disrespecting uh, important components of Vancouver's history. You know, personally, my view is if we all lived uh, in, you know, maybe a step above 10th and never drove anywhere and didn't build buildings, I am on the high end of believing that that would be a better world than the one in which we live in. I am not, you know, a gung ho pro development build, build, build person. Mm -hmm. However, I think you can actually reinforce community planning principles and get less sprawl and a better environment uh, if the political process gives neighbors the opportunity to tell the truth about how bad development is or isn't for them and gives developers the opportunity to compensate victims. One last example I'd like to give is Metrotown. 
you know, uh, Burnaby's collecting a lot of money, but there are very clear losers when the neighbors get rent evicted, right? There are these dumpy, as I understand it, old apartment buildings with low income renters who, you know, I wouldn't want to live in those units, but those are, those are, you know, very important homes to people and they're lost. And generally around Vancouver, I think developers have to give what, like a couple of months rent and relocation money to the tenants. Mm -hmm. So, you know, why not? have widespread displacement, but if you're making 500K per unit profit by getting rid of the tenants and uh, building a taller and more modern building, if it's 500K in profits, why don't you give 300 to the tenants? At least you get the right to make 200K and the tenants hit the lottery. You know, 300K for a lot of these people would be a huge amount of money and they'd be able to find, you know, better housing and still have extra money for groceries. So let the victims of new development uh, participate in the upside. I think that's really the key of what I'm proposing. And when you do that, the opposition dissolves and everybody can win. Fascinating. Transparency and redistribution. <laughs> sounds, sounds good. Well, maybe we'll leave it there, Tom. We've asked you before, but how, how can people get a hold of you or, or read more of your stuff? I know you're super active on Twitter. Yeah, uh, I, I, I probably too active on Twitter. If you want to read my research, you can go to blogs.ubc.ca slash Davidoff or just Google Tom Davidoff and don't look for Carolyn Thomas Davidoff, the director uh, <laughs> in uh, the Fox River Valley. And uh, yeah, you can do it that way. Pop me an email, thomas.davidoff at sauter.ubc.ca. I just had a great exchange with a woman who's angry about the empty homes tax, uh, the topic for the next time. Hey, hey, Tom. Yeah, which which we'd love to have you on yeah. to actually chat about that. But just quickly, that the model of redistribution that you've gone over, have you done any writing on that? Or have you have you put together a more thorough model that somebody could look up if they no, were interested? No, just the op-ed. You know, I mean, I think I'm like stating what's called the Coase theorem in economics, which is an important one. You know, there's, let me, let me indulge myself for three minutes on this. Sure. Everybody should look up the fundamental welfare theorems, which say, if you can trade in everything, then let the market go. And all the government needs to do is redistribute from people in a great situation to people in a lousy situation, you know, transfer money, but let the market sort themselves out. One problem with that is that generally assumes that, you know, when I eat an apple or build a building, it doesn't mess up your life. And real estate is a market where that is clearly a problem. But a guy named Ronald Coase from Chicago, you know, years and years and years ago, and he won, I believe, a Nobel Prize for this, said, wait a second, externalities like that are okay as long as property rights are defined. So, you know, if property rights are defined, if I have the right to block you from eating the apple, we're still going to get to the first best outcome. If you want to eat the apple more than I want you to not eat the apple, you'll bribe me to eat the apple. If you have the right to eat the apple, I'm out of luck, but you should be eating the apple. And if, and, and, and if you have the right, but I'm willing to pay 100 bucks for you to not eat the apple, you know, you pay me my money and uh, in a way you go. So we can still get to the best outcomes. You just have to have rights defined, you know. That's an approximation. It doesn't really work because it's hard to be that transactional in a political setting. But I would really encourage everybody to read some basic economics. Just Google fundamental welfare theorems and uh, cozy and economics. You'll get lots of links and away you go. Sorry, Tom, just thinking about this out loud. So if 
the NDP and the Green Party has has talked about putting restrictions on on the market in Vancouver, and that's kind of going to be the solution to the housing market. With what you're saying here, is that not suggesting that maybe there's even a more freer market that we haven't considered that might do wonders for how the Just city with operates more defined, with more defined well, players? Well, I think something like the NDP's empty homes tax is actually an example of that in action. What they're saying is. When you take up real estate in Vancouver, you're denying the opportunity to somebody else. So you got to pay for that opportunity, uh, be it through income tax, being a landlord or property tax. Right. Where I think the Greens could learn something is when they think about setting the price of being a foreign buyer, per se, at 30 percent of property value. How much damage does it really do if some rich guy buys a condo in Coal Harbor? You know, 30% of a million dollars is $300,000. Is the world really $300,000 worse off if you've got an empty unit sitting there, especially if it's going to pay the empty homes tax uh, and maybe this new BC housing affordability fund? No way. There is a dollar value of how bad it is when somebody comes into the market and leaves a unit empty. Uh, If the government can collect that much uh, from the parties, then everybody's well off. You know, a lot of people say, oh, the empty homes tax isn't going to work because people are just going to pay it and leave the units empty. Well, (laughs) that works really well because, you know, the city (laughs) collects one percent of the value every year. You're halfway to paying somebody's rent, for goodness sake. And, you know, the guy isn't doing anything too bad. So I think these taxes are great. But think about you don't want to charge more than the society's hurt by the activity you don't like. Great. Well, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for coming on again, Tom. We really appreciate your time. Well, thank you guys. And uh, thank, thanks for all the thoughts. Okay. Have a great day. So there you have it, folks. Our discussion with Tom Davidoff, UBC Sauter School of Business and a reoccurring guest. Yeah, you know, always a pleasure having Tom on. And an interesting twist on this conversation was to get in kind of to the more of a economic theory, right? And talking about just generally, you know, we've had a lot of people come on the podcast and commend the city for their ability to negotiate. And basically, I don't think Tom's suggesting that the city does not do a good job, but he was kind of implying that you know, there needs to be more negotiation in all all areas of redevelopment, right? Yeah, and also bringing it out of the uh, the back room and, and into the light so everybody knows exactly what's at stake and yep. basically trying to figure out, okay, put a price on this. Put what, a price on it. Let's, let's negotiate in the sunlight so everybody understands exactly what's, and what's I, uh, being offered. And I wish we would ask this of Tom, you know, when we had him, but we, we've kind of talked about this. How do you identify the stakeholders exactly, right? I mean, who are the people that are involved? Because often communities come down to, you know, a community group, but is that really reflective of the community that well, lives on the ground? Well, exactly. And we've had people on on the program, I mean, thinking of Chinatown, it's like sometimes the loudest voices, and, and there was some criticisms thrown around on for both sides, right? right. Bullying and everything else. Yeah. And it's like, who is a community? Who are the voices? We get into murky territory there, and I think Tom's idea is to add some transparency there. So for not sure. sure it's going to actually happen, but it, it, very interesting idea. Yeah, for sure. So Matt, a couple things before we uh, cut for the day. Yeah. Um, you're going out of town. For... I'm heading out of town. I'm out of town right now. Right yeah. now, I am out of town. Um, you mean you're off right now? No, I mean, when this hits the airways, Matt, we can I'm, see you, Braden. And, oh, okay, okay. Yeah. yeah, all right. So I'm gone, <laughs> uh, but I'm going out for a short vacation here, and uh, I'll be back soon. But we are still available, and uh, yeah. one thing I would say is PCS. 
PCS, yeah. So go over to VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. Sign up for private client services. It's the best online resource for searching for real estate listings. It gives you sold prices, so you get to see sold prices. You also get to see listings about 36 to 72 hours before the general public. Talk about getting a leg up on the competition. No, no kidding. And we offer that for free. Yeah, uh, A lot of people have reached out, as we've said, and signed up. If you want us to sign you up, we do have some sort of good ideas for how to sharpen a search. And, uh, and we can set you up if you want to have a quick chat about it. Takes it takes about 10 minutes. It's quick. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Sometimes even five minutes. Depends. Depends how broad your search is. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, so get in touch with us. You can always reach me, 778-847-2854 or Matt at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. Or you can try me at 778-866-4574 or Adam at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. And Brady D? Media at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. <laughs> what? <laughs> Are you going to give a different one every time? I thought you were info. Aren't you broaden? <laughs> I'm, I'm never going to be broaden. <laughs> Come on. Broaden your name media, potential. Media at Vancouver Real. I didn't even, I didn't, I didn't even know we had that. Handle. Do we have media at Vancouver? Are you yeah, sending yeah, people no, to? That's real. That's real? Yeah. Well, okay. You're so in everyone... charge of setting it up, so you must know better than us. Yeah. All right. Well, hey, uh, yeah, reach out to Braden at uh, media at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. And uh, we'll see you next week. Yeah. Take care, guys. And uh, happy Canada Day. I guess no. No. You're already I'm you're already, already gone. down. Canada Day's over. <laughs> Sorry guys. See you guys later. Two thousand faces for radio. Subscribe today. Hey everyone, pardon the interruption. We just want to take a quick minute to thank the following sponsors who make this show possible. This podcast is sponsored by Common Ground Consulting. Are you developing in the Lower Mainland? Common Ground Consulting is a development management and consulting company with experience in single family, townhouses, multifamily, and commercial developments. What I love about Common Ground, Adam, is they manage the whole development process from due diligence and feasibility reports for initial purchase of land to completing rezoning, development permits, and building permits. They streamline the whole process with strong relationships with sub-consultants and municipalities and a deep understanding of all city requirements. Common Ground Consulting. Feasibility and efficiency prioritized every step of the way. Learn more at commonground-consulting.com or 604-807-6419. We are also sponsored by Oakland Realty. This is our real estate brokerage, best brokerage in the city, hands down. If you are in the industry, a new agent, an aspiring agent, somebody just looking to make a change, new culture, new energy, new resources, head over to oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. That's oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. Not only do you get to meet Michael Morgan and the gang, the big wigs over at Oakland, you get a huge incentive for first going to oakland.com slash join, typing in VRP 2020.